Well, good evening. We bring you greetings in the name of Jesus. Teach one here. It is a, a pleasure to, to be here and worship with you this week. And I don't know a lot of you. I look forward to learning to know more of you. And the one I do know, I know pretty well. <laughs> and my brother goes here and now I'm finding out how much gas he burns to get to my house. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's good to be here. I trust that you've been praying. You know, one of the most terrifying things about being a preacher is that once you're behind this pulpit, people expect you to say something. And you know, every day of the week, I've got to be here and you're expecting me to say something. And so it's worth your prayers because I feel like what I have to say, I feel very empty sometimes when it comes to speaking. And so I ask for your prayers. We do bring you a welcome from the Strasburg congregation. We welcome you there any time you get a chance. If you're by, we'd love to have you there. And it's about two and a half hours from here, so it's not too far. And uh, my wife and children are not here. I have three girls. One's a seven-year-old, four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And they will be coming down here at some point in time. And they're looking forward to that, and I am too. My wife said, this is the first time since we've been married that I'm away from home. <laughs> and I guess it has been. So we managed to keep it together that, that far. So keep, keep us in your prayers as we go through this week. I do plan on having something for the children to do from day to day. I know you do schoolwork, but we're going to have you do a little bit more. So every evening here, I'm going to write a word on the board. And it's a word out of the Bible that we often don't know how to pronounce, and maybe we don't even know what it means. And I want you to come back the next evening with a pronunciation and a definition of the word. And maybe to help some of us adults out as well. So I'll, I'll write the word on the board, and you take note, and I'll be looking for an answer tomorrow evening. I guess you can all read that, right? Okay. Well, you, you go home and study that one out. And let me know tomorrow night how you say it and what it means. <clears throat> well, how do you start out a week of meetings? That's a good question. And I, I thought about that a good bit, and I, I went back to a sermon that I preached quite a while ago now. And I decided to speak on what is truth? What is truth? You know, the old song goes, if we ever needed the Lord before, we sure do need him now. And the reality of it is that if we ever needed the truth before, we sure do need it now in the day and age in which we live. And I trust that as we go through this week, that we will hear the truth and I hope that you are interested in the truth and that you are, you are seeking for the truth. You know, a long time ago, there was a politician who stood in the judgment hall with a man before him whose life was in the balance. And this politician asked one of the most famous questions ever. He asked, what is truth? What is truth? Turn to John 18. 
with me? What is truth? Quite the question for a politician to ask. We don't often associate truth with politicians, do we? But in this case, it was a struggle for him. John 18. And let's read, let's start at verse 33. We know the story very well. John 18, verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now I don't understand Pilate's motive entirely for asking this question. Was Pilate just being sarcastic? Was Pilate sincere? Or was he just confused and befuddled about the situation in front of him? And he said, I don't know. What is the truth? What is truth? And somebody said it this way, that he walked away. It says, after he asked this question, he walked away. Somebody said he walked away from the greatest authority on the greatest question, and he committed the greatest crime. And you know, we can't answer for Pilate tonight. But how important is the truth to you? How do you answer the question, what is truth? And do, how important is truth in your life? And I guess my question for us is, how important is truth this week? Because what you get out of these meetings is going to partly, it's going to fully depend on how much you value truth. You know, the Bible mentions truth about over 200 times. And so if you come and go to church and you don't have any understanding of truth and it's preached to you out of the scriptures every Sunday and you read it and you have no idea what truth is, how much good will it do for you? Not very much good at all. You see, many, many years ago in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve found out how important truth was. They really did. When Satan came walking into the garden and he said, Yea, hath God said. And right in front of them was a decision. What is truth? Am I going to believe God or am I going to believe Satan? What is truth? What is truth? And we know the end of the story. Satan deceived them and made them doubt the truth of God's word. And they found out the hard way. Why do we preach about truth? Well, it's because there is the devil, going about in this world, deceiving people, 
Jesus said he is a father of lies. In John 8, 44, Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees, he said, you're of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And so we live in a world under the dominion of Satan and his power. And so we ask, what is truth? In the last couple years living in this country, we, we certainly ask the question, what is truth? We don't know. We can't trust people. What is truth? Satan is in the business of telling lies, and Satan is in the business of leading people away from the truth. The world is deceived. 1 Timothy 6, 4, and 5, he's talking about the times in which we live. It says, he is proud knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. You know, the world is a desert when it comes to truth. The world is destitute of truth. That's what he's saying here. Again, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And I can't tell you, if you're in business today, you know how many men will tell you a lie with a straight face. Why? Because their consciences are seared. We live in a world destitute of the truth. And the world has lots, corrupts the definition of truth. They will make excuses for lying. They will make excuses for falsehood. Why? Because they live under Satan's dominion. They live under the father of lies. And one of the reasons why the world cannot stand the truth is because it condemns them. When we see the world trying to make go-arounds on the truth and dodging reality, what we realize is that inside their consciences are guilty and they cannot stand the truth. The Bible says in Romans 2 verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that 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 judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. God gives us a conscience. And it says here that God's judgment is going to be according to truth. The world tries to work around that. The world tries to dodge truth to soothe their conscience. There's condemnation in their hearts. The world under the father of lies changes, it manipulates, it attacks the definition of truth in so many ways. And you know what it really comes down to? It really comes down to the devil knows his time is short. That's what it comes down to. And the devil is working overtime to lead people away from the truth. It's the only way the devil can get anybody to serve him in his kingdom is to lead people away from the truth. And he does a very, very good job at that today, in the church, in the world around us, in our families, wherever you, you might say. <clears throat> so tonight I want to look at three ways that I think our society and our churches face this distortion of the truth 
corrupted definitions of what is truth. And I have some illustrations to, to illustrate that. Three ways that the postmodern world defines truth. I'll show you some illustrations here. <clears throat> I have a picture here. Now, <clears throat> can anybody tell me what this picture is? You can just take a guess. You can take a guess at it. Somebody painted it for a reason. Anybody have a guess? pay money for this. I paid money for this thing. <laughs> you, you better not let your children's drawings go to waste because this, this, this holds pretty good uh, value. <clears throat> well, you don't have an answer, do you? The reason why I brought this, this painting is that one of the problems in our world is that truth is relative. This painting comes from postmodern art. And when I mean by postmodern, I just simply mean in the day and age in which we live. And this illustrates the definition of truth today that the world embraces. The reality of it is that each one of you could take this painting, go home, put it in your favorite room of the house, and you could believe whatever you wanted to believe this picture is, and you would be right. You would be right. No one here is going to tell you that you're wrong. No one. I won't. The cashier at Ollie's Outlet doesn't even know what this is. <laughs> Okay? Nobody's going to tell you that you're wrong. And so, I'll just prop it here. So one of the corrupted definitions of truth today is that truth is relative. Truth is relative. And what does that mean? Well, it means that truth is not absolute. And they, they will tell you that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now the question is, if somebody tells you that truth is relative, is that a relative statement or is that an absolute statement? And if the statement that truth is relative, if that's a relative statement, then we just disproved our own theory. If it's not a relative statement, then you have to explain to me when it's true and how and where that that statement is true. And so we can already shoot holes through the, this theory of relative truth. And yes, maybe people won't come up to you and say, yeah, I don't believe truth is absolute. Or I, I don't believe truth is relative. But what do they believe? What is truth to them? Is that, do we have absolute truth today? Is there such a thing? I believe there is. Relat relativism says that we cannot know the truth. Truth is subjective. Like I was telling you, whatever I believe that picture to be is true. No one's going to tell you that you're wrong. Truth is subjective. What I believe is true may not be true for somebody else. Have you heard those kind of theories today? What is truth? Therefore, we cannot judge the actions of others because we don't know. For them, it might be right. For them, it might be true. Relativism says that the morals 
that we have are just societal expectations that are created from subjective viewpoints and understanding. So the morals that we hold to as a society are simply there because we as a collective people have decided that they should be there. Is that true? Is that true? I want to turn to uh, 1 Samuel 15. We have an individual in the Bible who, who believed in relative truth. 1 Samuel 15. <clears throat> and you know the story. Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites, and he didn't do that. In verse 13, Samuel is coming to Saul here. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore, then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord... As great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people. And obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. Here was a man who believed in relative truth. Did he not? You know, one of the things with relative truth is that it's based on my desires and my beliefs. It's subjective, like we said. And we see that in verse 20 here. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have done it. So if I, if I say I've done it, it's true. You know, we, we, we hear a lot of arguments like that today. Another, another attitude we get with relative truth is pragmatism. Now sometimes pragmatism is good, but sometimes it's not. In verse 21, what did he say here? He says, well, the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen, and they did it to sacrifice to God. So do the ends justify the means? With relative truth, they do. If the end is good, the means are okay, whatever it takes, even disobedience. Another characteristic we have of relative truth is that it's based on good intentions and sincerity. And we, hear, we get a lot of pushback on that. If you try to hold someone accountable for what they've done, 
Oh, yeah, but, you know, I intended to do good, and I intended good intentions and sincerity. And again, we see that in verse 21. They were going to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. We also see that in verse 21, that relativism is a majority vote. Relative truth. Is Is a majority vote absolute truth? Doesn't have to be. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. And yet he says here, it was the people. The people wanted to do this. It wasn't me. You know, the, the collective group said that we, we do this. <clears throat> I want us to understand tonight that the Bible does not teach this theory of relative truth. In all these ways, we can excuse ourselves from facing reality and from facing God himself. And yes, people will accuse us of being narrow-minded, backwards-thinking, intolerant, exclusive, discriminatory, and you name it, for believing in absolute truth. And you're, they're right. Because absolute truth excludes. It excludes everything that is false. Everything that is not true. It is narrow-minded. It is exclusive. It is discriminatory. And if you want to, I wrote down here on my paper, two plus two has always been four. It's absolute. It's discriminatory. There's nothing else that equals four other than two plus two. Um, I shouldn't say that. There's two plus two will always equal four. There's no other answer to that equation. And yes, we even have public schools today almost changing the way math is done. Isn't that something? We live in a Dan age in which you can get credit for getting the wrong answer on a math question just because of the way you did it. It's unbelievable. But that's the world we're living in. And you know what? The serious reality is that people think they're going to get to heaven not because they got the answer right, but because of their sincerity and good intentions. And it's not going to happen. It's relative truth. And has it affected the church today? Yes, it has. The answer is yes. There's many majority votes ruling the day in Mennonite congregations, and it it has led them away from absolute truth. I remember having a meeting. It was about music. I went to a music conference in Philadelphia. And our friends in the Franconia Mennonite Conference were there, and they had accepted homosexuality and gay marriage and all that stuff. And he explained to me how it happened. He said, we got together as a congregation, and he said, we felt the Spirit's leading that this was the way to go, and all of us were in favor of it, and we believe that God can honor that in our congregation. My friends, that is relative truth. It is not absolute truth. And yes, we see it in many churches today that good intentions and sincerity are more important than holiness. They're more important than holiness. We will let sin go. We will let ungodliness go because... Their intentions are good. They're sincere, we might say. It's a feel-good, it's a lightweight Christianity. But I would like to tell you tonight that relativism represents the broad way. The broad way, the easy way. And Christianity is not that. Christianity is the narrow way. It is narrow, it's exclusive, it's, it's intolerant of untruth. It's intolerant of lies. It's the narrow way that leads us home. A second area tonight that the world confuses this definition of what is truth, the answer to that question, 
I'll show you another picture here. I hope you all can see this. Can anybody tell me what's on this picture? I'm getting a little easier, right? It's not that hard. Just say it. A vase. Is that what all the rest of you saw? Two faces. There we go. Now, who's right? <laughs> he says it's him. <laughs> who's right? Well, both of you are right, right? One of the definitions of truth today that we see is this idea. It's called pluralism. Now, I don't want to get all technical with you tonight here. I'm a simple man, too. Here's what it means. Today in mainstream Christianity, we have this idea that there is more than one way to God. And what I prove of that is that, yes, you're both right. But when it comes to the Bible and the absolute truth, is there more than one way to God? I had a customer once who wanted me to cut a picture. And we do CNC cutting. And it was a shape. And I saw right away that it was an immodest shape of a woman. And I emailed him back and I said, I can't do this. I said, I'm a Christian. I do not promote this kind of thing. I cannot do it. He sent an email back. He said, I'm a Christian too. And I thought, oh boy, what am I going to say now? <laughs> I'm a Christian too. So is that true? What is truth when it comes to pluralism? And I think a lot of Christians today will say that there are more ways to God just to avoid conflict. They don't want to press the truth the way God teaches it in the scripture. I also remember September 11th, and maybe some of you younger ones don't remember, but it caused quite an uproar in the evangelical community because George Bush was interviewed. I don't know how long it was after the towers fell. And this is what, how it went. Bush said he believes that both Christians and Muslims worship the same God. He says, I think we do. We have different routes of getting to the Almighty. But I want you to understand, I want your listeners to understand, I don't get to decide who goes to heaven. The Almighty God decides who goes to heaven. And I'm on my personal walk, he said. Now, if you remember back in the day, that caused quite an uproar in Christian churches across America. Here was a professing Christian man to say, yeah, there's more than one way to get to heaven. There's more than one way to get to, to, get to God. And I guess maybe he immediately backtracks a little bit and gives himself space to <laughs> believe something different. But pluralism says that all of us can be right. None of us are wrong. We each have our own way to God. I remember my brother talking to a neighbor lady who was getting ready to die, and he was telling her about Jesus, and I don't know what all the conversation was. She says, I have my own way. I have my own way to heaven. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And tonight, that is a very singular statement. There's nothing plural about that. You cannot get to the Father other than through Jesus Christ. This idea of all ways lead to one place is not true. It is not true. 
And yes, part of the problem with pluralism is it confuses the idea of everyone having equal value, which we believe, with the idea that everybody's claims are equally valid, which is not true. You hear that in today's society? That we get accused of not promoting equality if we disagree with someone. You know, the other, the other idea that pluralism promotes is that all people are born good. And you know, if you and I have children, we know that's not true. <laughs> we know that's not true. Yes, God created all men equal in his own sight, but it certainly doesn't make all our conclusions and beliefs true. And yes, again, we as Christian people are being accused of being haters because we don't believe that all ways lead to God. We don't believe that. We believe there is an absolute truth that says this is the way to God. There is only one way. And I don't think we should be afraid to be hated for that because it's the words of Jesus. It's the truth. It's the absolute truth. And does this affect the church today? We, we said that that relative truth does, but what about pluralism? I do, I do believe it affects the church today, and I'll tell you how I think it does. Today, in our churches, discipleship, cross-bearing, and separation from the world are fast fading away. Why? Because we've looked somewhere over here, and we said there's another way to the same place. There's another way to the same place. Supposedly somebody in another church has found a way to God, another way to be a Christian that's easier than what I have. I will go there. Let's remember something. The way of the cross leads home. The way of the cross leads home. If our Christianity is not a burden to live, is not a, a crucifying experience, the narrow way, you might say, the straight gate, that's the only way home. There's one way to God. It's the way of the cross. And I think in our churches today, we need to promote that. That if we're making decisions as families and as churches, that we need to understand that it's not the easy decision that gets us home. It's the hard ones. It's the narrow way. Not every way leads to home. And yes, sometimes it's controversial. But the truth matters. The absolute truth matters. The third way tonight that people pervert truth. I have another picture for you. Not a picture. Does anybody know what that is? Where's your school teacher at around here? <laughs> what is that? E equals MC squared. Relates energy and mass. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Okay? Science. You hear the rallying call today. If science says so, I will believe it, right? Is science truth? What is truth? Can we say definitively here tonight that if scientists have discovered such and such, that it is the truth? Many rely heavily on science for truth today. They will, they will back up their positions with the latest discoveries about Archaeology and science and technology and you name it. This is truth. And I'm not going to go into all the details of how many times they were wrong. <laughs> and how many times they've changed their mind. But I want to look at it this way. Science falls short in many ways to prove the truth. Let me explain. 
Science cannot prove logic and mathematics because it already presupposes them to be true. Does it not? Math existed before science. You might say, it's the law of God. And we use these things to, in the scientific community. Furthermore, science cannot provide answers to these questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Do I have a soul? What happens to me when I die? Is there something greater than me? Now, how can you use science to prove that? But we believe there's an absolute truth that tells us that, the answers to those questions. And another point here is that science cannot establish morality. You cannot use science to prove that what Hitler did in World War II was wrong. You can't. You can't use science to prove what Vladimir Putin is doing today in Ukraine is wrong. Science doesn't answer those questions. So we rely on absolute truth to answer those questions today. And I feel so bad for many young people who are going through schools and colleges and are hanging on to science. Science is going to give us the answers to life. We're going to discover these things. And they come up so empty-handed and so empty-hearted, you might say. They have no truth. And it's a shame today that so many scientists are atheists. So many scientists today are searching for that elusive God particle, that wonderful thing that gives mass to matter. But you know what? And a God can do that. And a God can breathe life into dust, and out of that comes man. It's amazing. Science cannot answer those questions. In 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Yes, the truth of this world is made foolish in the sight of God, in the eyes of God. Later on in the chapter, he says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And I'm sure if you would have gone back there, and poor Pilate, with Jesus standing in front of him, if you would have said, here's the formula to find out the truth, <laughs> he probably would have done it. But the very fact that he was in a strait about what the truth is tells us that there is no scientific formula or mathematical formula to define what the truth is. Where does the truth come from? You know, many, many churches today have accepted compromise in this area. They said, well, we're going to believe a little bit of evolution because we don't want to look stupid. We don't want to look unscientific. And the reality of it is that it's the scientific community who have erred from their own methodology. Science is based on what is observable. No one's been there at the beginning of creation. They say that evolution is a theory, but they act like it's a fact. It's just a theory. And so let's not compromise. Let's not compromise. Albert Einstein himself said this. He said, before God, we are all equally wise and equally foolish. And how true is that? What is truth? He also said this. Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that his spirit is manifesting the laws of the universe. 
a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. And I wonder how many science textbooks today have that quote from Albert Einstein printed in them. Now, he was a Jew, I believe. But science does not answer all of our questions. Science does not answer the questions of morality. What is right? What is wrong? That was the question that Pilate faced. What was right? He said, I find, no, I find this man to be innocent. There's no wrong in him. <clears throat> well, we don't want to end there. Then what is truth? What is truth? If somebody asked you what truth is, what would you tell them? <laughs> somebody have an answer? What is truth? There we go. Whose word? God's word is truth. And that is the, the only answer we need to give. God's word is truth. Whether it's his spoken word, his revealed word, his written word, it is truth. You know, the Bible says that God can't do something. What is that? He cannot lie. It says in Hebrews 6.18 that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. And I like the rest of that verse. We, we might have, that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that's set before us. We cannot lay hold on something if we have any doubts about whether it's true. And God says, I cannot lie. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. We know men lie, but God's not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And furthermore, God's word is forever and eternal. We have that verse in Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God's word is permanent. It's fixed. It's established. It's inflexible. It's unchanging. It's constant. It's enduring. It's timeless, and it's everlasting. And you could go on and on and on. God's word is truth. God's word is truth. You ever hear this saying, your word is only as good as you are? Same is true for God. God's word is only as good as God is. And you know how good God is tonight? He's perfect. He is perfect and he's eternal. And God's word is as good as he is. Perfect and eternal. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And yes, truth is divine. Truth comes from God himself. You know, God is the creator of the universe. And we are his creation. And the parameters of that relationship establish one thing. And that is that with all our information and all our knowledge as his created beings, we will never come to a definition of the truth 100% by our own conclusions and our own knowledge and our own understanding. Because we were spoken into existence by this word of truth. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. And that is where we need to go for truth tonight. You probably studied in the last Sunday school lesson this past week. God had some questions for Job, didn't he? He said, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who, ha who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? And I love this reality of God's word being truth. When he spoke the worlds into existence, 
Isn't that amazing? Just as sure as the reality of this wood is here. God's word is true because he spoke it into existence. It says in the beginning of Genesis that God said, let there be light. And it was so. And let there be this and this. And it was so. And it says that six times. And it was so. God's word is truth. God's word is reality. Right? The world we see around us, the reality we know is God's word. It's created with his word. And you know what? God's word is still working today. What does it say in Hebrews? That the world, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. And so the world that we know of today is upheld by the word of God. It is truth. It is solid. Another fact about what is truth is that truth is authoritative. Truth carries authority, doesn't it? And I love this idea because we as men, so many times we wander in darkness. And we face situations like Pilate. And we, we don't know. We don't know. We wish we knew the truth because if we knew the truth, there would be some authority in the situation. Jesus said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And there is authority in that statement. There is authority that truth will set us free. You know, if you are in trouble and you're standing in front of a court, in front of the judge, and you have all kinds of witnesses, and you have the jury sitting over here, what carries the authority of the day? Truth. Truth has authority to set me free or to put me in jail if I'm the one in trouble. And yes, truth never presents more than one option. Truth does not present all kinds of alternatives. And we as men struggle with that so much. We face a situation where it's like, well, it could be this, or it could be this, or we don't know, it could be this. Truth doesn't do that. It's singular. Truth is singular. Truth is sovereign over all disputes and arguments. It is sovereign over all disputes and arguments that we might have. And why is it so important for us to believe that truth has authority. Well, we already read this verse, but God says that he will judge us according to truth. And when God judges us according to truth, it carries authority. You cannot argue with truth. Yes, many men try to. Many men try to argue with truth. And sometimes it looks laughable, amusing. But when we stand before God on judgment day, there is no arguing with truth. It is absolute. And God knows everything about us. God knows everything. Second point I have here is that truth demands our attention and obedience. And our brother quoted this verse, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. What does the truth do for us? And furthermore, I ask, what is the word of truth going to do for us this week? I hope it cleanses and purifies our lives. We are to look in this book and read the truth, and it's supposed to do something in here, the Word of God. It penetrates to the core of who we are. You know, we're very fickle beings. We're very unstable. And there has to be something that penetrates us and corrects us, gets us back on the straight and narrow way. Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, 
and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's only one thing that can do that, and that is truth, the word of God. Can't argue against it. It pierces our hearts and our souls, and we know, I, I believe we know when it's true. We know when it hits home. We know that God is working. We know his spirit is working because it's truth. And I believe that no matter how many tribes and faraway jungles, Amazon rainforest, wherever you might find them, I believe God implants in every man a sense of truth that when they hear it, they know it. And he holds them accountable to that. He really does. He really does. Why do I believe that? Well, last section here, how does God reveal his word to us through creation? God says in Romans 1, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Every man on earth that stands before God is without excuse because God says through my creation, you can know the truth. You can understand me through creation. That's what God is saying. <clears throat> and so we are without excuse. And yes, God revealed his truth to us through Jesus himself. It was Jesus who stood in front of Pilate and he said, To this end was I born and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. What was Jesus bearing witness of? His Father in heaven, God himself. He says, I'm bearing witness of the truth. If you want to know how to live the truth, if you want to know how to walk the truth, just follow Jesus. He showed us the way. He, told, he said to the Jews there in John 8, he said, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And I like that there. If you want to know the truth, follow me. Follow Jesus. He is the embodiment of truth. And best of all, he walked this earth in human flesh. And so we can understand what it looks like and what it means to follow the truth. Thirdly, God reveals his word to us through his spirit. And we can read several verses here. I'll try not to take too much time. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And then in John 15, 26, he says, But when the Comforter is come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, again, it's a divine word from heaven, he shall testify of me. John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, what will he do? What is the Spirit of truth going to do this week? He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And we can have confidence that this week, if we mind the voice of the Spirit, that he's going to teach us the truth. He's going to lead us into the truth. He's going to convict us of the truth. That's the Spirit's work in our life. And he is faithful. And fourthly, God reveals his word of truth to us through the written word. You know, I'm absolutely amazed if you study the history of this book, how many centuries, how many thousands of years, and here we are today. 
Has, has there been any other book like that? I don't know. I don't think so. I didn't even check what the, other, what the oldest writing might be otherwise. But the written word of God has endured. It's the word of truth. And God, I don't believe, will ever allow it to be destroyed off the face of this earth until he comes again. I don't think he will. And our brother read these verses tonight. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's divine truth from heaven. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this week we'll hear... We will hear sermons, yes, evangelistic sermons, but we'll also hear sermons that are for doctrine and for reproof and for correction. The Bible is God's word. And the beautiful thing about it is it tells us the truth. It tells us the truth. You want to know about sin? You want to know what sin is? This book tells you what it is. You want to know what the love of God is? This book tells you what it is. You want to know what judgment is? You want to know what repentance is? Conversion? This book tells you what it is. It's the truth. You want to know about life after death? Read the book. The written word of God. In closing, one verse out of Psalm 43, verse 3. It should be our prayer this week, I believe. O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. What is drawing you here tonight? And what will bring you back tomorrow night? Let them bring me unto thy holy hill. Is it it your desire for the truth? Is it your desire for light? That's what this verse is saying. Send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. And I believe if we have that prayer within our hearts, we will come again if we have opportunity to hear the truth of God's word. God bless you this week as you make sacrifices to come out and hear the word of God. I'll try not to preach too long. (laughs) I don't know what kind of sermon lecture you're used to hearing. I know mine usually get to be 40 to 45 minutes. So maybe I'll have to amp up the playback speed a little bit. But God bless you for coming. I think you will be blessed. I know you will be blessed when you come. I've never been to a church service where I've regretted going to. Oh, I've regretted getting started going to one. (laughs) You know, but once you're there, there's a blessing there. And it's an opportunity that we have in this land that people in the world don't have. Do we understand that? That there's people in this world that have to worship undercover and they're willing to do it because they love the truth. And for us here tonight, we have it pretty easy, don't we? So let's avail ourselves of the opportunity. Why don't we stand for a closing prayer? Uh, Brother Jay, would you lead us?